Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. Welcome to episode 14 of our podcast. Late last week, we taped a special episode 13 interview with Jared Beasley, advocate for the appellant in the estate of Van Dyke versus Milner case, a fifth district case involving immunity for the police for failing to respond to a 911 call that turned out to be a domestic violence call that ended in the death of the wife that Pat and I discussed in episode 12. And before we get started with today's episode, we have another very exciting announcement. On episode 11, we interviewed Jeffrey Schwab regarding Bennett versus AFSCME. And on that discussion, he mentioned an upcoming union case before the Supreme Court, Cedar Point Nursery versus Hassid, which will be heard on March 22nd. We're pleased to announce that on March 25th, a few days after that hearing, we will be interviewing Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation, who is one of the attorneys representing the petitioners in that case. We thank Wen and the PFL and look forward to that interview. Also, thank you to those who participated in the polls to help us decide what cases we discussed today. One of those we plan to cover today, Sampson versus Prairie Farms Dairy, was decided last week. Instead, we will discuss Carter versus Wesley Township, which was recently argued before the Alnay Appellate Court, 3rd District. Yeah, we swapped one 3rd District case out for another, so you're still getting the 3rd District action, people. We're, we're doing what we can. That, that That's correct. And this case addresses whether a local government has a duty to maintain a road. Last time we talked about uh, police and their responsibilities and immunity. Uh, the underlying facts in the case are that a f- road flooded and four minors died, a tragic incident, as a result of the alleged failure to protect the road from a nearby river. This builds on our discussion as noted regarding toward immunity for police that was discussed in episodes 12 and 13 in relation to a state of Van Dyke versus Milner. Our second case today will be Mims versus Paincell from the Illinois Appellate Court First District. And our third case today will be Archibauer versus Springfield Clinic from the Illinois Appellate Court Fourth District. Both of those later, later cases are medical malpractice cases. These cases also address important civil procedure issues that we'll get to when we talk about them. As always, a very busy podcast. And with that, Pat, let's turn to our first case today, Carter versus Wesley Township. And in Carter, Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District, uh, will consider whether maintenance of a road is covered under tort immunity. The case addresses whether a local government has a duty to maintain a road. Uh, The underlying facts, as noted, are that a road flooded and four miners died as a result of the alleged failure to protect the road from a nearby river. Tragic facts here in play. Uh, There was much discussion uh, during oral arguments of the Illinois Tort Immunity Act Uh, Last week, we discussed on episodes 12 and 13, police conduct and the immunity that police are afforded and exceptions to that that are very narrow. This case has to do with the duties of maintaining property and, again, the high hurdle that that those injured have to get over the immunity bar. As a common theme in our podcast, one of the justices raised issues about the road commissioner being elected and how he voted for his in elections in the past. 
uh, was not germane per se to the case, but again, we have judges bringing in their backgrounds and experiences. In this case, what the appellant argued is that there is a duty under Section 3102 of the Tort Immunity Act for the government to maintain its property. And Section 3102, Pat, says that except as otherwise provided in this article, a local public entity has the duty to exercise ordinary care to maintain its property. And that word maintain is important in a reasonably safe condition. And the the appellee and the courts talked about Section 3105, which provides immunity for weather and does not require improvements. And there was a lot of discussion and questions about whether uh, the road uh, needed maintenance or that because of the way it was built and and some of the uh, water buildup, whether it actually needed improvements. And with that, do you want to talk about the oral arguments and and, uh, what the district court was looking at in this? Thank you, Dan. And the... As Dan mentioned, this is a very tragic circumstance, and counsel for the plaintiff appellants pointed out that the trial judge granted the the defendant's motion with great regret. He was uh, really troubled by the facts here, and uh, but he felt, I think, compelled to dismiss <laughs> the case based upon the immunity. Um, there is a dis- th- this case. There apparently was this big flooding event. This Fork Creek runs next to this road. There's a public entity that owns the property on one side of the road and a private entity that owns the the property on the other side of the road. And there created a dip in the road that created about a foot of water ahead of a bridge for about 60 feet that these miners, it was unclear whether they were driving the vehicle, one of them was driving the vehicle or whether they were passengers in the vehicle and there was an adult driving something, unclear. In any event, four miners- Four miners, described by counsel for plaintiff as a, as children, uh, perished in in this incident. And it was uh, in the brief, in the reply brief, I think it was. They had included a picture of what this looked like, and the justices were struggling over. Okay, what this, you've described this, and counsel pointed them to the picture they included in the brief that had been used as one of the exhibits of the road commissioner. Uh, which apparently is an elected commi- elected position in some of these rural communities. And the justice mentioned, you know, I vote for my guy and it's a powerful position. And Right, oh, right. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> and he was, a, in, in this case, it was unclear whether the road commissioner was a, an actual defendant. There, there were separate cases. And the, the, the appellant, when asked about that, really, he, he said he didn't know, but they thought he'd been dismissed or wasn't named in all of the four cases. And what had happened here is that there had been the claim by the plaintiffs that there had been erosion essentially over time where the road had sunk down and it had allowed uh, these trenches to create on either side of the road so that the water couldn't get out of the road in the circumstance where the creek overflowed its banks. Now, on the morning of this incident, there were 11 floodings in this one township. I don't know how big Wesley Township is. I can't imagine it's all that big. But apparently they had a real mess on their hands. And one of the claims apparently that they focused on in the uh, trial court was that they failed to close the road. Well, they seem to have changed their theory when they got to the appellate court. And we're going to see counsel for an unsuccessful party in a lower court changing their theory when they get to the appellate court when we talk about the MIMS case. A much more pronounced change in their theory. Very, uh, very really, pronounced. But, but really important to see the strategy 
that appellate that that parties use as they change, and you really can't get a flavor of that from the briefs. Oftentimes, that only really can occur in oral argument. If you're counsel for appellee, you'd love to point out, hey, they argued X below. Now they may have said it below, but they didn't really <laughs> mean it. And here they are arguing a contrary or a different position, emphasizing a different part of their case because it didn't go so well in the trial court. Now they've changed their theory. Okay, right. that's something to say. Uh, but it's important. That's another reason to look at oral arguments is not only see what the justices are up to, but to see what the advocates are up to. Because I think in the later case we're going to talk about, their strategy is very clever and may actually work. We'll see. I, we'll I don't see. know, but we'll see. Uh, preview of coming attractions. Uh, so the claim by the plaintiff was, well, you should have put in a culver, which would be a which would have allowed the water to go underneath the road, they claimed, or you should have raised the road. And what the government argued is, hold it, those are improvements. Those aren't maintenance of the road, the sinking road that's flooding all the time. You know, up here in Cook County, we've got every other week the Displain River, the Displains River floods. I mean, it's just just knows. As soon as you see a a, a dark cloud, the Displains River floods. I mean, this, this is this is a thing that happens, and this seems to be a similar circumstance down in Wesley Township, wherever that is, and. Apologize, people from Wesley Township. I don't know where the place is. It's in the third district, in the third district somewhere. And the defense, and the, so there was expert testimony that the plaintiff had ar- that had offered that said, "Hey, you put in this culvert, you raise the road, you get rid of these trenches, you do all this stuff." And they said that's maintenance of the road because you have a sinking road. Government said no, that was an improvement. That's making the road better than it was. We don't have a duty to improve a road. Um. And they also said, well, you put the culver in, that doesn't solve the problem. That just puts it underneath the road. That doesn't, that doesn't, that just gives it another place to go, but doesn't get it off the top of the road. It wouldn't solve this problem. There was um, also uh, things about right before the bridge and the grade of the, the road. And again, the angles and the water was accumulating right at the foot of the bridge. And this road, you're right. And the road commissioner knew about all this the morning of the, the morning of the flood and knew that there were all these places. They didn't close the road. They didn't give warnings. They didn't do any of these things. And so I ask you to imagine if a private entity owned this road and allowed this, what amounts to a death trap to exist, would a private entity get away with this? Would we trust a private entity? Uh, the, would we allow them to be immune from suit? This is an immunity. This isn't willful and want. This is an immunity. There also was a discussion about whether there was discretion uh, that the government there's 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 ministerial tasks and there are discretionary tasks, and one of the immunities they argued applied was one that applied a discretionary discretionary standard, and that's give, the government is given a broader range of options in that circumstance, greater protections in that in that circumstance, and so they. They argued whether they had actually made a decision. And they said, well, no, no decision had been made not to ma- maintain this road. You know, the elected members of the township and the and the, and the, the uh, supervisor, uh, it seems to be the executive director, so a hired staff member, not an elected official, hadn't made these decisions um, to not maintain these really bad roads in this creek that seems to overflow uh, fairly regularly and this, this destruction that occurred. And, uh, and going back to my point before, We've talked about the police don't have to actually police in the EM. We mentioned the Gary versus city of Calumet city case where that EMTs don't have to do EMTs. And we mentioned the Schultz versus um, St. Clair County case where the, the emergency communications, people don't have to emergency communicate. Um, it is good to know that in the sixth circuit, 
the Detroit public schools actually have to educate people. Now, the people in Baltimore may want to know that based upon the story that just came out where a kid with a .013 or something was in the top half of his class and got sent back. He's in the top half of the class and got sent back to ninth grade, and his mother had no idea that he wasn't doing very well, had passed three classes in four years, uh, <laughs> and isn't going to graduate, it turns out. You you have to pass Oops. more than three classes, yep. Uh, so it that now Baltimore's in the fourth circuit, so he doesn't have a right maybe to education if the government's going to create a monopoly education system. But in Detroit, you do. So in the sixth circuit, you got to get a constitutional right for the government to actually educate you. But you don't have a duty or a right to policing, emergency services, EMTs, and apparently roads. Um, I, I I think it speaks for itself. Uh, now, it may be the law that they don't have to maintain this road or improve this road or to close this road uh, that causes a situation where people die. Right. But one should consider whether that should continue to be the law. This is a statutory immunity. This is not that certainly built on a common law immunity. There was reference to that in the discussion. But one has to ask um, if, if that's how, if we're going to turn over public ser- services to government, that we're going to continue to maintain that circumstance. And I think there's obviously been a lot of questions in the last year regarding police. And they have a lot of immunities well beyond the police. Um that's my soapbox, uh, but uh, it's a it's a tragic case, and it really points to some uh, so, some problems with these with these immunities. I agree, I agree. Um, notwithstanding that, uh, the, the, on the, on the law, it seems that the uh, the government may have the better part of the argument because it seems they were asking for the road to be improved. If you're talking about adding a culver, raising the road, getting rid of the ditches, these kinds of things. Um, so they may, they may be constrained by what the statute says. So it's some a situation where you send the, send the issue to the legislature. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. And we'll address that later And predictions uh, sure to go wrong. Dan, do we have anything else to add on this case before we take our first break? We do not. And with that, we'll take our first break and be back with our second case. We're back on segment two of episode 14 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to discuss now Mims versus Paintsel. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the facts of this case? Thanks, Pat. And this is a case, uh, as we talked about last week with medical malpractice cases, or two weeks ago, uh, very difficult cases with with sympathetic uh, plaintiffs. And this is a situation where an adverse medical outcomes can lead to extremely sympathetic plaintiffs, but nonetheless, as we've talked about, medical malpractice defendants can prevail because of the difficulties of showing proximate cause and and the actual injury. Uh, and that was proved in the trial result in Mims versus Painsel that was recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court First District. This is another uh, panel of Justices Smith, Lavin, and Cobbs. That we've talked about several cases, including those three before, and uh, links to the oral arguments and other materials will be in a, on the LinkedIn post later. So, in this case, the deceased and in the show notes page. Don't forget that. There'll be, the well. be a show notes page. Yep, the deceased in, in this case suffered from a degenerative neurological condition. She had ulcers. There was talk about maybe eighty-eight ulcers after she left the 
uh, long-term care facility she was at, uh, and an, an alleged lack of protective dressing that the plaintiff claimed was not reported by the defendant physician uh, because he felt that he would be punished and that if the abuse and neglect was reported, uh, it would have been stopped by the Illinois Department of Public Health and state re- regulators that would have come in and investigated the situation. And the appellee uh, uh, talked about the fact that uh, that would not have uh, changed the outcome. In any, in any event, in this case, the jury returned a defense verdict. Uh, but in the absence of a special interrogatory, uh, it's going to be nearly impossible to tell if the jury decided for the defense on the basis that the death was caused by the underlying condition alone, or if they found that the doctor simply did not violate his standard of care. To address this, the plaintiff appealed the survival claim only and not the death claim and sought recovery for pain and suffering, but not the death itself. In a recent episode, we described judges having experiences and bringing them up during oral arguments, as we talked about in the first case. In this case, during oral arguments, Justice Lavin, who was a plaintiff's lawyer uh, before becoming a judge, discussed the one expert and also the instructions for proximate cause and for pre-existing conditions and seemed very skeptical in, it, in this case at one point, describing the very narrow issue the appellant was trying to argue, and that the appellant actually conceded was the, a very narrow, narrow argument on, on rebuttal and the broadness of the trial. He was, uh, we didn't see the visuals, but he said, you know, your case is this narrow and this small, and, and your trial was this wide. And so, Pat, thoughts on, on the oral arguments in this case and uh, the, the hurdles that the appellant faces here? Thank you, Dan. And uh, first, what's the, the despite the sympathetic facts and the description, if you listen to the oral argument, this poor woman had this neuro this neuro degenerative neurological condition that was ineluctably because of her condition going to lead to these ulcers. That wasn't disputed. The question, and she didn't have continence in either her bladder or her bowels. And so consequently, the, the, the claim was is that they, the, these dressings with this particular protective equipment needed, particular oil, needed to be on, her, on her, those ulcers at all times to prevent her from, the, from the, the, uh, her waist getting into the ulcers and causing pain. So this is a pain and suffering case. And the 88 times that Dan was referring to were the times that Painsel, they claimed Painsel, the treating physician, came and saw her where those dressings were not on on her. Uh, Although, it, you know, it was confusing because at one time uh, on, on rebuttal, uh, no, on the appellee's argument, he talked about there was only five ulcers that she had while at the facility when Painsel was treating her, four of those healed, and the last one did not heal because she degenerated. So the 88, it was unclear whether they were under Painsel or subsequent well, no, they were 88 instances of okay. them not seeing of of him not seeing the protective dressing and her those ulcers, no matter how many there were, being exposed to waste that would cause pain. Um, that was the point that counsel for the point, who is a, a very prominent plaintiff's attorney, um, was trying to make. Uh, and uh, Dan mentioned Justice Lavin. Justice Lavin was also a very prominent plaintiff's attorney when a uh, plaintiff's personal injury attorney that handled these very kinds of cases and hired the very expert and was very familiar with the expert uh, that counsel for the plaintiff appellant had hired in this case. Um, and they, he discussed, I've hired this guy. I know him. He's an excellent expert, but it doesn't deal with the issue you've brought to us. 
And so it's important to, as Dan mentioned, the trial focused on the cause of death. This woman's degenerative condition is what indisputably caused her death. So that didn't work. So they focused on the pain and suffering claim, which is a survival claim. Now, what's that mean? We need to differentiate between wrongful death claims and survival claims. At common law, if a person died, there was no cause of action that could be brought for their death or the pain and suffering and other damages experienced prior to their death. In other words, those claims abated. So these are statutory claims uh, created in the mid-19th century in Illinois and in many other states around the country. Um, and so the wrongful death compensates the family members. The, the, it's a bit of an irony. Compensates those who live. Uh, whereas the survival claim is for the pain and suffering and claims that were experienced by the deceased. So the causation of the death doesn't matter on the survival claim. It only matters on the wrongful death claim. So they're saying if you have a person who 88 times is found to have been laying in without protective dressing, and that would have caused pain, there's a, there's, you have to remand this case for a trial on the survival claim. And that's where the special interrogatories come in. If the jury found, as was possible, f- that Dr. Paintsell didn't breach the standard of care in failing to report these instances to the IDPH, the Illinois Department of Public Health, that would have ended this, then there is not only no wrongful death claim for medical malpractice, there also is no survival claim. But if they found simply that his conduct didn't cause the death, then there might be a survival claim, but there is no wrongful death claim. Now, as I think I mentioned, that this case was tried once before to a hung jury. Um, and, uh, that came up at the, at the argument. And so what is a special interrogatory special interrogatory prior to a recent amendment favored by the plaintiff's bar that I testified against and wrote against at the time you did. And and this was, and, and this was something the plaintiffs really complained about, um, that this was used principally by defendants, but it isn't limited to defendants. Plaintiffs could use them too. And they could have been useful here to ask, did Dr. Paintsell uh, violate the standard of care? Did Dr. Paintsell's conduct cause the plaintiff's death? They could have asked those questions and we would have an answer as to what the reasoning for the jury's verdict was. They didn't submit that. So it really creates a problem for the trial court or sorry, the appellate court. Created a problem for the trial court on the motion on the motion to for new trial, which would have had to have been filed and denied. Um, so it's you can't get at what caught what was the reasoning for the jury's verdict, especially considering this trial was about what caused this unfortunate woman's death. Um, they so the special interrogatories are particular fact questions that are asked to the jury, and the reason why they're so important is because under Illinois law the jury is only given a general verdict. That is, all of the elements of the cause of action are put into one verdict form and they aren't broken down into the elements as oftentimes happens in other states and in federal court. They're given a general verdict only. And it had been the the practice in Illinois for over 150 years to allow special interrogatories. That builds on a practice that comes from 15th century England. and, And that's where the practice started. 
And we have that practice so you can get at what the, what the facts were that they found. Because as we've talked about before, causes of action are made up of elements. In this case, in a professional liability case, it's duty, breach, causation, damage. Well, there's no case, no question in this case, there's damage. There's no question this woman would have experienced pain and that she died. What caused that death? And whether that whether that cause was caused by a breach of the standard of care, that is what the doctor, what a what a reasonably careful doctor would have done in the same or similar circumstances, is the question, the two prior questions that you have to answer in the affirmative in order to find liability. The fact that they found there was no liability means they could have gone either way. They could have either found there was no causation for the death or that there wasn't a breach of the standard of care. But we don't know because the question didn't get asked. It was all put in there. And plaintiffs love general verdict forms, except when they don't. And this is the circumstance where they don't. When it goes wrong. When it goes wrong. And it's better to have specific questions asked of the jury. And this is a circumstance where they could have ferreted out their claims. Now, it's also important to remember in this case that there, the, the, and this came up at oral argument, that there was a settlement with the nursing homes for $900,000 for this woman's death. The only claim here was against the individual doctor who is a frequent flyer, uh, it, it, so to speak. Uh, he is, he is uh, treated, he has been sued many times. Uh, I'm not sure successfully or not, not successfully here, at least so far. Uh, but they were not happy with him because he testified that if he had actually disclosed that there were these problems, he would have been blackballed from his job. He would have been, uh, he would have lost his job, this kind of a thing. And so that's the reason why he didn't report these things. Um, and so as a consequence, you have this, this really, you have this really awful, very sympathetic circumstance and no remedy, at least as to this doctor. There was a remedy as to the others. And because of the way the jury was instructed, you don't get to find out what the jury thought. And it's really important to find out what the jury thought. Um, and, and, and that's unfortunate that we're not going to have that in most cases anymore in Illinois going forward. At the time this case was tried, this was before Section 21108 of the Code of Civil Procedure was amended, they could have been used. And if they had been used, we may have had a much different argument and they may have had a much stronger argument, both in the post-trial motion before the trial court, as well as before the appellate, before the appellate court. But the justices kind of threw up their hands. They're like, what are we supposed to do with this? You tried one case and now you're appealing a different case, kind of like what we talked about in the last argument. You argued one thing on the motion to dismiss, failure to close the road, and now you're arguing something else, failure to improve the road or maintain the road, whatever you want to call it. So it, 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 when you change your theory, you, you got to have the record. And the, the problem is here, they didn't have the record, it and seems. The, and, and the appellee made a very uh, compelling argument saying that, as you mentioned, two juries had uh, one was hung, but the other found uh, no liability. And the judge had reconsidered and reviewed you know, the jury's verdict and uh, did not find it, you know, unreasonable. So he's, they said three, three fact finders have now looked at this issue and there's no recourse. And so, uh, and, and I don't know, it was unclear to me, maybe you picked up on it, Dan, whether the trial judge was the same judge in both cases. It um, sounded like it, but I wasn't entirely clear. So, so it, this judge may have heard, it could be that he heard both cases. And uh, if he did, then he's heard the case twice now. 
right. Right. He's heard the case twice now. And so that even gives his finding that there was no error and that there, there wasn't, uh, it wasn't against, the jury's verdict wasn't against the manifest weight uh, now twice because he's heard the evidence twice if that, that fact happened. Um, and so that even would give even more credibility to the denial of the post-trial motion. Um, I, I keep referring to post-trial motion. Post-trial motions required to be filed in Illinois after any adverse jury verdict and anything you don't raise in your post-trial motion can't be raised on appeal. So I don't know what their post, if they appealed both elements, both the wrongful death and the survival claim, but they would have had to at least have uh, appealed the, the survival claim in their post-trial motion to give the, the trial judge the opportunity to correct the, the error, which is something we're going to see in the next case about allowing the judge, the trial judge, to correct their error. Dan, you had something I, else you wanted to add? Now, the, the only other thing I'll say is that Justice Smith repeatedly, the appellant, uh, kept cutting in and out. And he kept saying, you're out. And I think, you know, when we get to predictions, maybe a, a, a forecast. I think in this case, the plaintiffs in all three cases might be out. So. They might be. Uh, all three cases here uh, turned out for the defendants in the uh, in the trial court. We'll see if they can maintain that on appeal. And with that, we'll, we'll uh, take a break and be back with segment three, Arkbauer versus Springfield Clinic. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. And we're back with our third segment, and we're going to discuss another medical malpractice case, Archibauer versus Springfield Clinic. And this is a case the plaintiff had a colonoscopy, and there's questions of whether a defendant has to plead comparative fault as an affirmative defense in order to claim that the plaintiff's conduct was the sole proximate cause of the injury. Ladies and gentlemen, we are getting deep into civil procedure here, so we are. get ready. <laughs> And, 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 and as we'll talk about, there's also discussions about whether uh, some of the pattern instructions can be used uh, for a plaintiff, but we'll get to that. Uh, also at issue was the certainty with which the trial judge denied a motion to eliminate and whether it excuses the failure of a party to renew an objection to testimony that a party sought to bar. And for those not familiar with motions to eliminate, there are motions that are made prior to trial that try to exclude or narrow certain issues and focuses that the jury and triers of fact will actually hear during the case. And there's a question about, again, whether uh, the motion eliminate that was denied uh, pretty forcefully by the trial judge had to be renewed at the time that the evidence uh, that was sought to be excluded uh, was uh, brought into the trial. And those are among the questions that the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District is going to pass on when they decide Mark Bauer. In this case, the plaintiff, again, had a colonoscopy that resulted in a subsequent splenectomy, which is a known complication of the procedure. Uh, the plaintiff was on an aspirin regimen that she did not advise the defendant doctor of, and if she had, he would have told her to stop because the blood thinning effects of the drug make the complications more likely. And for any of those of you that have had a colonoscopy, doctors often in their uh, recommendations and in their uh, a regime before you go in for it will tell you not to take caffeine and 
other things and not to use aspirins or other blood thinners uh, because it can affect those things. And just as a historic note, Pat, uh, Bear on March 6th, 1899, so this weekend uh, in 1899, they actually uh, received uh, a, a patent on, on aspirin. So um, in any event... Uh, Never say you didn't warn anything on the Podium and Panel podcast because that's that's information you can use. <laughs> right, sure. And so in this case, the jury returned a defense verdict. Uh, Illinois law makes it very clear that prox- sole proximate cause does not need to be pled. Uh, the plaintiff, as noted, moved in motions eliminated bar certain testimony. Uh, the trial judge denied that, and the motion was not renewed, as noted, when the testimony was introduced. And again, one of the justices on this panel in this uh, district, uh, again, brought in personal experience, referencing that the entire panel of three uh, justices all had extensive jury trial experience and that their sympathies lied with the trial court judge who has to make these decisions and uh, we're concerned, I think it's a fair statement, that we can't second guess every single ruling and step that the trial judge makes. At one point, one of the justices asked the advocate for appellant, you know, did, did, did the trial judge have some obligation to advise? Well, this is the testimony that was subject to the motion to eliminate. The motion to eliminate, eliminate, he denied. He denied it, right. So He doesn't have to go flag it. Right, right. And so, Pat, there was a lot of questioning by the panel involving the pattern in jury instructions 12.04 and 12.05, which we have talked about previously, and whether the plaintiff can be the person with sole proximate cause. 12.04 is concurrent negligence other than defendants, and it, it, it has language in there. Uh, And there was also uh, instruction 12.05, negligence, intervention of an outside agency. And again, uh, in this case, plaintiff uh, had pled not being advised to not take an aspirin or ibuprofen and and, uh, various counts of her complaint. And there was testimony that this action might have caused her splenectomy. The panel also raised the issue that 12.05, only one case, uh, Sullivan versus Edward Hospital, had addressed squarely 12.05 in connection with the plaintiff and whether a plaintiff uh, could be, in fact, subject to the 12.05 instruction. Pat, thoughts on oral arguments and what took place here? So Dan, thank you. Uh, and I want to, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit on some civil procedure issues here. We talk a lot about jury instructions. They come up all the time on appeal. Um, it's, it's critical that the jury be instructed properly. As we saw in the last case, the MIMS case, the jury fall, seemed to have followed the instructions. They put aside their sympathies. They, uh, they uh, seemed to have followed the law, even if the result may be unpalatable to some, considering the, uh, considering the injuries uh, and, and, the, and the death of, of this, this, this woman and the pain and suffering that was claimed. Um, but that's the job of the jury. Um, so... The jury instructions in Illinois come from uh, a committee created by the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, full disclosure, uh, two of my partners over the years have served on that committee. Uh, one currently serves, but notwithstanding the presence of some defense lawyers on the on the committee, it's dominated by the plaintiff's bar. Uh, the, the instructions are not approved by the Supreme Court. And some have found been found not to reflect the law. <laughs> They've been struck right. down. So the Illinois Supreme Court has struck down the 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 instructions drafted by a committee of the Supreme Court. Great. There are also some 
there, there, I have written about some of the problems with this, the instructions. And as I mentioned before, with the special, the absence of special interrogatories, that makes that problem that much worse. And um, it's a, it's it's a it's a lengthy process for anybody that's tried a case because you sit with the judge and opposing counsel, and each side proposes instructions, and then there's modifications to them. There's long forms and short forms. There's all kinds of discussion. You brief on some of these things because sometimes, as Pat said, some of these things are not consistent with case law or other provisions. Well, there's no instruction at all. And you have to right. come up with what's called a non-pattern instruction. And some judges won't give a non-pattern instruction. Uh, if there isn't one, I'm not giving it. Or you try to adapt an instruction from a different that's used in a different context and convince the judge to use this instruction. There may be special instructions that need to be given if some crazy circumstance arises. You have to craft an instruction. You hope it try you try to reflect the law. It, it's to give you an idea. There the Illinois pattern jury instructions are 800 and some pages. The pattern jury instructions in California are like 3,800. They've got instructions on everything under the sun. I don't know if that's better or not. It's just just give you an idea how different states deal with this. Yeah. Um, so. In this case, we mentioned that we're going to get deep in the weeds on some civil procedure. So Dan mentioned sole proximate cause. It doesn't mean sole proximate or cause. Let's say that is, that's, what, that's what it's called. We all know what we mean, but what does that mean? The first thing to understand is that Illinois employees a modified comparative fault scheme, uh, which I think we've discussed previously. And in order to take advantage of the scheme, a defendant has to plead an affirmative defense and has the burden of proving that the plaintiff was at least a a contributor to their own injury. In contrast, while a defendant doesn't have to plead sole proximate cause, that there was something else that caused this injury, uh, it has to defeat the plaintiff's burden of showing that the defendant was merely a cause. The defendant doesn't have to be the cause. It doesn't have to be, it can be one of many causes, as long as it is a cause under Illinois law. So as to the doctrine of sole proximate cause, first, it can be more than one cause. It's just as so long as it ain't the defendant who's named in the case. It could be a defendant who was dismissed. It could be a defendant who was settled. It could be a defendant who was never sued. It could be uh, uh, anybody else, but they're not on the verdict form in Illinois. So it's not like in Indiana where you have a non-party that actually gets on the verdict form and they can have fault allocated to the non-party. In Illinois, and I've written about this as well, and we'll link to it in the show notes page, um, the real problems with 211.17 on this issue, I've written with Dave Levitt, and then more about a sole proximate cause doesn't have to be sole. Uh, it doesn't have to, you know, it, it, and I've written on that, um, and we'll link to that uh, in the show notes page in an article I wrote with Paula Valella. Um, so this can be really confusing to a jury. When you're the defendant, you're saying the sole proximate cause was X, yet X isn't on the jury verdict form. X is nowhere to be found. And in this case, X was the plaintiff. Right. So that raises the question of, well, if X is the sole proximate cause, why don't you have to plead comparative fault as an as a, uh, affirmative defense? Because you're saying they were partially at fault. That wasn't the plaintiff's argument. I'm sorry, the defendant's argument. The defendant's argument was the entirety of the causation of the injury was plaintiff. And in that circumstance... Do you have to plead comparative fault? And there's one case, Sullivan versus Edwards Hospital, that says, no, you don't have to plead it in that circumstance. Now, the case that says you don't have to plead sole proximate cause so long as you're challenging causation is a case called Leonardi versus Loyola. It's an Illinois Supreme Court case where you don't have to plead sole proximate causes as an 
affirmative defense, you merely have to challenge causation. But does that apply to the plaintiff? We're going to find out. The, the justices seem to be a bit skeptical about that. Do you have any case? I got one case. Now, it happens to be a Supreme Court case. That's good. Right. But it's only one. And there's like, in the history of this, you're telling me there's only one time? Right. If this, I, I, I'm not following. We'll see. It, it, it's and, it, and as you noted, the appellee did not uh, plead this as an affirmative defense. There's a lot of discussion about that, about, you know, you know, it was in the it was in the pleading. So why would you not have listed it as an affirmative defense? Because and, it doesn't uh, have to be. Yeah. And, and, I, and I've, you know, I've I've had uh, you and I've discussed not not on the show, but uh, uh, when Judge Lichtenstein was on the bench, he used to ask what affirmative defenses you had pled, and then if they weren't listed, there's a catch-all, and he would always say, "Well, that catch-all is not intended to be a, a catch-all or extensive. It has to be one of the." A through whatever, and we would get into discussions with him about no, you know, you wouldn't need a catch-all if it was limited to A through H. But in, in any event, so then we have the issue of the Dan mentioned motions in limine. Now, a motion in limine, if it's granted or denied in Illinois, it has the objection has to be re-raised at the time that the evidence is introduced. So, example one, not what happened here. Motion in limine granted opposing side violates it. If you don't object, your previous grant of the motion to eliminate waived in all likelihood. Not not guaranteed, but in all likelihood. What happened here, example two, motion to eliminate denied. Evidence properly introduced because the motion to eliminate was denied. Plaintiff didn't object. And the judge, it's not the judge's job to do the plaintiff's trial, the trial judge or the trial lawyer's job for them. And the, what the justice pointed out, and this went to the sympathy for the trial judge, is maybe your strategy changed. Maybe the evidence was coming in, in such a way you were okay with that evidence coming in now. I'm not going to decide for you how to try your case. Um, and that was the sympathy that was shown for the trial judge is they don't know what you're trying to do. They want to interfere with your case. It's not their job to do that. Their job is to rule on motions. Right. You bring things to the and to make sure there's a fair trial. And one of those things doesn't include telling, excuse me, Mr. <laughs> trial Lawyer, uh, didn't you want to object to that? Um, that's not how this works. Um, they got it, should, it, it, it should not work that way. No, and it shouldn't. It, the trial judges should be the judge, not the reminder of all the things you should be doing that you're not doing. Um, and uh, you, you will get you will get a funny look from a judge. Don't you want to object to that? Uh, they won't say it, but they're going to kind of get the look. You, you need to be objecting to that. Uh, that, 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 that kind of a look. Um, I unfortunately have seen that look before. Uh, right. But... Uh, <laughs> The, but in this case, what they argued, uh, counsel for appellant argued, is that the denial of the motion to eliminate was with such force it would have been futile to re-raise it. I, I they got a, they got a high hurdle trying to get around that because again they don't want to create a, an exception that essentially swallows the rule to give the trial judge the opportunity to rule on the motion. They are a court of review, and in this case, there wasn't an opportunity for the trial judge to fix the mistake. Like we talked about with post-trial motions, you have to give the trial judge the opportunity to fix the mistake so that they can give a, give a remedy, whatever that remedy happens to be. And in this case, there wasn't that opportunity. And so we're not going to second guess what the trial judge did because the sympathy part is well, when you reverse a trial judge, you're saying they didn't do their job right. And so they don't want to tell a trial judge they did it wrong when they didn't have the opportunity to get it right. Right. And they were there, and as, as you note, they they can't try to 
you know, help, help, you know, unless they're pro se, sometimes with pro se uh, plaintiffs or defendants, the, the court might be more lenient. But if you're a, if you're an experienced uh, lawyer, uh, you're on your own, right? You have the duty to present your case. It's your, it's your stage and you're, you have to remember what you want to tell. Exactly. Okay. And with that, Dan, let's go to prediction sure to go wrong. Um, take it, take it away, Dan. Sure. I, I think on Carter versus Wesley, as you mentioned, I think. Well, we first have to mention we're four for four people. We, we're going to, we're going to tout we're that. We're so far for four. We, we won't be there. We keep saying it. We won't be there for a long, but we're going to, we're going to tout it as long as it lasts. <laughs> and, and, uh, in my column tomorrow in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, I talk about uh, the fact that, you know, those were pretty obvious cases or things that, you know, from our perspective, listening to the oral arguments and our experience, but uh, we, we will be wrong eventually. I, I think in Carter versus Wesley, I think you're right. I think that the uh, plaintiff loses here, sympathetic as they are, the four minor deaths. I think that this question of improvements versus maintenance and the, and the immunity bar is, is too high. Uh, to overcome in this case, I think for the plaintiffs, the the I, I the one th- I think I agree with you that might be the outcome, but I can see them with the expert testimony that was offered that they could find a question of fact. Remember, this was decided on summary judgment, so could they find? I mean, there might be that. I don't think it's likely, uh, but that that's the that's the the way it could come out just to reverse because. The, the the plaintiff appellant in the case at they filed a cross motion and they wanted they, their relief they asked for was you should enter summary judgment in our favor, right? I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the no. best they can hope for is is a reversal um, with a, a remand for trial. Uh, but I, again, I don't think that's going to happen. Even if I might be sympathetic to their particular position in in this case, same. Uh, that brings us to Mims. Uh, Dan, what do you think there? I think, again, I think with other special interrogatories, I think the fact that there was a hung jury, like you said, the trial court may have been, the trial judge may have been the same judge. Um, again, I think that uh, the questions from uh, Justice Lavin and, and just the uh, way this case goes, I, th- I think that, again, a sympathetic plaintiff, but again, I think that based on uh, the record below and based on, you know, no special interrogatories, as you mentioned, I think the plaintiff is going to have a hard time getting uh, back and, and getting a third trial in this case. And then I, I think I agree. I think I agree with that. It, it, uh, Justice Lavin, I uh, did not uh, hide his cards very well um, in, in this particular circumstance, even though based upon his professional experience prior to being on the, the appellate court, um, he may have been sympathetic to the situation. I think that the way the case came in, they were appealing a case different than the one they presented to the trial court. And I think just like with with the other, with the other matter, uh, Arkbauer case, you got to you know you can't appeal a case different than the one you tried, uh, and and that was uh, that that was a, a bit of a problem. And so then we have uh, Arkbauer, which is I'm sorry, similar to the Carter case, not the Arkbauer case. And then we come to Arkbauer. Um, this is a much closer question for me uh, because there the but the fact that it's a Supreme Court decision that tells them they can do this, I think puts the appellee in a very strong position. I don't think they're going to go with the motion eliminate thing. They're not going to that that ain't. I don't think that's going to happen. 
I don't think it, I, I, they didn't seem to be buying that. But I think they they are gonna they may express concerns in such a way that the they try to signal to the Supreme Court to take this case. Um, but I think ultimately the appellee will be successful here. So I do think the defendants are going to go three for three. Uh, but we'll see. Dan, what do you think about Ark Bauer? I agree with you, Pat. I, th- I think that uh, given that case and the fact that one of the justices specifically asked about it uh, and was interested in Edward, I, th- I think you're right. that They're going to set this up for the Supreme Court to make a definitive ruling if they can. Supreme Court certainly has spoken on this issue before. It's an issue that comes up uh, both in medical malpractice and other kinds of cases. This is not an issue that's limited to medical malpractice by any stretch. It comes up obviously most frequently there, but it's it's not limited by there by any stretch. And with that, that brings us to the uh, to the quote rule of the week. Uh, Dan, tell us about the rule of the week. Thanks, Pat. Today we're going to talk about and take a look at the Supreme Court of the United States rule on granting petitions for certiorari. Uh, in order for the court to hear a discretionary case, and as we've talked about, most uh, final highest courts of any level have, have great discretion in what cases they take. The court long ago established a rule that requires four of the nine justices to vote to accept the case. Uh, and as the United States court states on the page devoted to Supreme Court procedures, the court usually is not under any obligation to hear these cases, and it is usually only only does so if the case could have national significance, might harmonize conflicting decisions in the federal circuit courts, and or could have presidential value. It's a rule that the court itself created in the latest instance of what I call the conference docket uh, in my column tomorrow. We, we have the shadow docket that we've talked about previously, Pat. Uh, the latest case of, of the conference docket is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which has been carried over conference to conference more than 20 times this term. And there could be many reasons for why they carry cases over, but at times the conference voting uh, is not invoked for a number of reasons. The best instance of a case that was granted and heard and where the chief justice maneuvered and used his uh, limited uh, powers over the court uh, to influence and and get a consensus opinion uh, is in 1954. Uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, actually in the fall of 1953, Earl Warren just became Chief Justice and was the first case he heard uh, as Chief Justice. He went in the conference after uh, on the first Friday after they heard Brown versus Board re- re-argued, and he said, we're not going to vote on this case uh, because I want you to just think about it. And conference after conference throughout the fall and into the spring of 1954, Earl Warren uh, made it clear that he did not want to vote because he knew he needed a unanimous decision. And so at one point he said, you know, if you don't vote this way, what you're saying is that blacks are inferior. And so that's a, that's an example though of a case that was, was granted and then, uh, and then decided in this case, like Dobbs and there's some other cases that go conference to conference. There could be a lot of reasons. It could be a dissent of, of somebody because they don't have the four votes. As we talked about previously with, with the gun cases, uh, Heller and others, there was concerns about the appellants and even the justices that if they granted the case, the decision might come out wrong, right? They, they, from, they the kind perspective of, of, from the perspective of those that favor gun rights, exactly. Right, right. And so some of the justices oftentimes are concerned that it, because it only takes four votes to get a case to the to, to argument, but five to, to, to make a decision, that careful what you grant, right? And so, Pat, thoughts on this? Well, 
Dan, Dan has brought in, uh, given me an opportunity. If you want to know more nuggets like that, maybe not the bear patent deal. I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> but uh, if you want to learn more nuggets about uh, what the, the chief justices have been up to, the seventeen of them. I didn't know there were seventeen until I read I read Dan's book. Dan's book on the chief justices, uh, and as we have seen uh, recently, certainly the amongst the most powerful people in the country, who many people have never heard of. Dan has a book uh, on the topic, so go on Amazon. It's available there. I imagine other platforms as well, and get Dan's book. Uh, Thank you, Pip. But the uh, the Supreme Court, uh, it is always the machinations of it are always very interesting, and this is one of the very strange ones because, yes, four to take it, five to win it. There's a long way. There's a big difference between four and five, as it turns very much. out. Uh, and with that, Dan – uh, we want to thank everybody. We had our best week in terms of, uh, of listens we've ever had. We had our most episodes in a given period. And yet we really want to thank the listeners for, uh, for all the listens and, uh, look forward to talking with you next week. We don't anticipate a special episode this week, but we do have that special episode on March 25th plan and hopefully others as well for, uh, Dan, this is Pat. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.